I want to talk to you today, this morning, about what it means to be an agent of hope in the world. And man, do we need this. I mean, we are now 12 months into this pandemic. Uh, we need it because of all of the uncertainty that we've been through over these past 12 months, economic uncertainty, joblessness, medical uncertainty. It all just kind of catches up with us. And so we need hope. And as we've said through the eight weeks of this series, Christian hope is not meant to be glib hope or just mere optimism. It's not just about having my own individual wishes fulfilled. Christian hope is meant to be hope that is for everybody. Christian hope has its eyes wide open. And as it has its eyes open, it also laments. It protests injustice. And it acts. And as Christian hope forces people, compels people into action, it's then that they become agents for the kingdom of God. In fact, the New Testament word is ambassadors. The agents, the ambassadors of God, represent the values and the purposes and the core principles of the kingdom in the world. This is February, if you're tuning in at a later date and wondering where this situates itself in the calendar. And for us in Canada, this is Black History Month. One of the things I was reading this month was a poem by William Cowper. It was written in the 1700s. Cowper was a poet, then he became a Christian, and then he became a Christian abolitionist. And we're going to come back to that. But this particular poem has a line in it that has really stuck with me since I first read it. Here's the line. Sometimes, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. What I like about that stanza is the word surprise. Sometimes in the most unexpected moments, in the dark moments, hope comes. It surprises us. What I like about the stanza is that it says, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. In other words, when you started singing, it was still dark. There was still uncertainty. There were still obstacles. The singing itself was an act of hope. And then God surprises you. It's a funny thing, you know, anytime somebody coughs or sneezes, though we don't do that much in public anymore for fear of the shaming if that ever happened. But you remember when it used to happen in public, you coughed or you sneezed, and the standard response you could expect from those around you was... God bless you, of course, bless you. Even atheists, even skeptics would say, bless you, without even thinking about it. It's almost like an instinctive reflex. I was reading an article about that practice, and it said the practice most likely began in another pandemic centuries ago. Back then, it was the bubonic plague, which killed up to one-third of the whole population of Europe. One of the symptoms of catching the plague was sneezing or coughing. And so it was Pope Gregory, Gregory the Great, who suggested saying, God bless you after anyone sneezes. Only it wasn't meant to be a cliche. It wasn't meant as a reflex. And it wasn't an autopilot kind of comment. It was a prayer for deliverance from death itself. God bless you. 
Now, I read that online. You might wonder, well, is that a credible source? It, it was actually from the website of the Library of Congress, so not a super credible source like Facebook or Twitter, but not bad, not bad. The idea behind blessing someone was that just as we live within a physical ecosystem, that we also live within a spiritual and a personal ecosystem. And just as one person can infect another person with an illness or a virus, we can infect people with courage or hope or joy. People can sometimes make people sick. I mean, sometimes we'll say that. You make me sick. People can also make others well. God bless you. There's this basic truth about the human condition. It's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. What is in you will come out of you. We know that's true physically. What's in you? Virus, measles, germs, bad breath, all of it. It comes out of you. But it's also the things that are in us spiritually and emotionally that leak out. Emotion is just so incredibly contagious. In one study I was reading about, a depressed person and a non-depressed person, they sat down across from each other in a room for two minutes without saying a word. And afterward, the non-depressed person was significantly more depressed than they had been before, even though they hadn't said anything at all. We're all social distancing right now, six feet apart to avoid COVID. You've seen the videos, well, you've probably seen them online, about how a sneeze, a simple sneeze, can travel 27 feet how the human sneeze is clocked at 100 miles per hour. hour. You can't outrun a sneeze. So how far do you have to socially distance not to have people drive you crazy? (laughs) A Yale researcher, a man named Nicholas Christakis, studied the social networks of thousands of people. And it turns out that contagions, what he called social stampedes, can run rampant through human relational networks. And it turns out that the tendency for human beings to influence and to copy each other, this is immensely pervasive. So students that find themselves rooming together with more studious roommates end up studying more. Diners who sit next to heavy eaters wind up eating more food. People who live next door to neighbors who garden and mow their lawns end up taking better care of their property. And it's not just that our friends affect us. Our friends, friends, friends affect us. Your friend Ted has a friend at work named Ned who has a neighbor named Fred, and Fred's negativity depresses Ted, who depresses Ned, and you're having a bad day, all because of somebody who you never met. It's called the three degrees of influence, and I kid you not that if the friend of a friend of a friend quits smoking that week or put on some weight or gets depressed, you are more likely to feel their agitation. And so some of you as parents, you may have found yourself saying to your kids, be careful about your friends. But it's not just that. 
Be careful about your friend's friends, or even be careful about your friend's friend's friend. Because everything that you think, that you feel, that you do, you're say, you say, it can spread far beyond your own immediate circle. It can influence in ways that you can't even begin to understand. Researchers tell us that social networks, networks they magnify the things that they are seeded with. Which leads us to kind of the first key question for today. What is it that you want to seed your network with? What is it that you want to seed your own little life with? Because the seeds you plant will grow and take root in places that, that maybe you never imagined. So here's an idea that is yet to be topped. These are the words that, that I hope for those of you who have been joining us over these past, past eight weeks, have some familiarity and resonance now. These are the words of Romans 15, verse 13. How's this for an idea? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're all learning about hope. And this verse, our central text, in this verse, the word you is actually a plural word. If you are from the south, we'd say y'all. May the God of hope fill y'all with joy and with peace. In other words, the plan is for the church, for the whole social network of God's people, for the community to be a community of hope. Now, if you're going to be a hope bringer, if you're going to shed hope like a virus, if you're going to plant it like a gardener, you've got to be filled with it. Because what's true biologically is true spiritually. It's what's in you that will come out of you. If negativity is in you, that's what comes out. If despair is in you, it will come out. If cynicism is in you, that's what comes out. God's plan is not for you just to be full of hope. It's actually for you to be so full that it overflows. To overflow means there isn't space enough to hold it. Have you ever tried this? Have you ever filled a glass right up to the brim? You did this as kids, admit it. You filled it right up to the top. You wanted to see how far it could go before it spilled out over the edges. A funny thing about liquids is that you can actually get them to crown the top of the glass. It has something to do with, with the viscosity of the liquid and the, the air barrier and the liquid barrier, and it forms a meniscus. It crowns the top of the glass. Paul says, in effect, have, your, have hope. Have hope crown your life the way that juice crowns the glass so that when it comes time to move, it just sloshes out over everybody. Here's the key, though. Here's the key. If you're going to overflow with that kind of hope, you can't depend on your friend's friend's friend and how they're doing. Now, here's the plan. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we don't do it with our own willpower And we are not passively dependent on people and circumstances around us. Because we have someone who wants to fill you with, may the God of all hope, fill you with joy and peace. How will he do this? 
He's going to use great thoughts from his word. He's going to use being with the community of his hope-filled people because hope is contagious. It spreads from Jesus' followers one to the other. He's also going to use those moments of solitude when you cast your eyes fully on him. He'll use beauty. He'll use the wonder of creation. He'll use your worship. Remember the words of the poem? Sometimes a light surprises the Christian when she sings. He will use whatever is true and noble and just and right and pure. Everything that is lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. And all of it is rooted in, it's dependent on your understanding of the title that Paul gives to him. He is the God of hope. That's our God. And I'd love to just camp out there for a second. One of the things that we've seen in the series is that most people in our culture assume that hope is a virtue even if they don't have it. And so we probably would assume that it's always been that way. And in fact, it hasn't. Dallas Willard put it like this. One of the most remarkable changes brought by Jesus and his people to the ancient world concerned the elevation of hope into a primary virtue. Because in Jesus' day, hope wasn't regarded in the Greco-Roman world as anything to be cultivated or valued or cherished. It was thought, it was thought of as a desperation measure. Some of you might remember this from school, from high school or college. You remember the Greek myth of Pandora's box? Remember Zeus was ticked off at a man, Prometheus, for stealing fire from the gods? And so to get revenge, Zeus creates this woman named Pandora, and she is given a box or a chest, which Zeus, being the master of reverse psychology, warns her never to open. Of course, human beings can never escape that childlike tendency to do the opposite of what we're told. And she couldn't help herself. And when she opened the box, out from Pandora's box, flew every kind of plague and illness, hunger, envy, anger, all the things that would torment human beings. And she rushed to put the lid back on, And as she did so, she found that the only thing remaining in the box was hope. The Greek word for hope is the little word alpis. If you've ever wondered where we get the word hope chest from, it's from that story. The Greeks actually had lots of different versions of the story. Sometimes hope gets out of the box. Sometimes Pandora put the lid on the box in order to keep it in. Sometimes hope was thought to be a positive force that kept people going. More often, though, hope was understood to be something that just added more torment to life. The basic orientation to life was this. Hope was an illusion. It's a kind of self-deception. What it really amounts to is a failure to rely on human reason. You understand that nobody ever called Zeus the god of hope. Nobody ever gave that title to Odin in Norse mythology or to Baal or to Moloch in the Old Testament. There is no god of hope in any of the ancient religions. 
Because the goal of all religion in the ancient, particularly the ancient Near East, was to eliminate desire, not to fulfill it. It wasn't by accident. There was no rational grounds for hope. But then you have Paul. Paul, under the inspiration of God, drawing on the scriptures of Israel, and especially on Jesus, is the first to attach this this latent virtue that, that was never seen to be that, to attach it to God himself. He is the God of hope. And I hope you understand that the titles like that, they don't just get made up. They don't get made up because the writers of the Bible want to hear themselves talk. This is a claim. It's a claim that has content to it. It's an idea. And it was an idea that was unprecedented in the ancient world. You might remember, if you go way back to week one in the series, that hope, part of our definition of hope, hope is the anticipation of good, that good things await us. And it involves three strands. It involves imagination, and it involves desire, and it involves belief. The God of Israel imagined creation. He conceived it. He thought it all up to begin with. The God of Israel has great desires for his creation. He loves the world. How many times do we see that refrain in the Old Testament and the New? He looked out of a creation and said, it's good. It's very good. The first text that we give to our, our children to learn, for God so loved the world, he desires good things. For what he made. He wants it to flourish. He imagined creation. He desires it's good. But also this. The God of creation believes that what he desires will come to pass. In fact, he knows it and he will do it. And therefore, the title God of hope belongs first and only to him. Hope is the anticipation of good. And nobody anticipates good more than God. And nobody anticipates more good than God. God is the most hopeful being in all the universe. I, I mentioned that the, the little New Testament word, the little Greek word for hope is the word elpis. In their language, in their day, it actually meant something more like expectation. You could expect something good to happen, and sometimes they would use it that way. But you could also expect something bad to happen, and more often they would use it that way. But then along came Jesus' followers. And when they had to write down the message of Jesus, said, we are going to kidnap that one little word, Alpis, hope. And we're going to put it on steroids, and that word is going to change the world. And that's what happened. Elpis, hope. You know, in the New Testament, that word is never used about expecting bad things. Instead, it's named, it's elevated to a a virtue that would be claimed by the whole world. Christians, people of faith, and and people of no faith will continue to hold on to that world, that word as a way of recognizing that something within us longs for, pines for the fulfillment of good things. And as followers of Jesus, we want to say, amen, we get behind that. 
Because we know why that's implanted in us. Because we are, after all, the people of God. Created after his own heart and his own image. So if he's the God of hope, would it not make sense that we are creatures who yearn for and who are sustained by hope? It was such an inspiring uh, word in, in their day and now in ours that even secular folks, people who didn't believe that there would be any solid foundation for it, can't let go of it. The God who made the world, loves the world, is going to redeem the world. And if that's true, it's not just that hope is pleasant, and it's not just that it's empowering, and it's not just that it's something we enjoy. It means that it's something that is eminently reasonable. It's logical. It, it fits. Now, it doesn't... It doesn't mean that we always get to be optimistic about how every little situation in life is going to turn out. I mean, we're living in the middle of one of the great examples. I'm sure that lots and lots of people have probably prayed that God would stop the COVID virus, just stop it right in its tracks. To be honest, I'm, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. It could happen. We'd love it to happen but I'm not sure. And does that mean that I don't have much faith or that I don't have any hope? No, 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 no. Hope doesn't mean conjuring up feelings of certainty about specific situations in our life. We never know how any given situation is going to turn out. Faith in God doesn't change that. If your faith is based on that idea that you can predict the outcome of a situation because of your faith in God, you are on shaky ground. We never know how the situation will turn out. We don't even know how it should turn out. And that's the point. We're not God. We don't get to see eternity. But hope doesn't mean feeling certain that you're going to get a particular answer to your prayer. It means that you bet the farm on God and that what he sees ultimately is worth holding on to. And that what he wills ultimately will prevail. And because he's the God of all hope, that in the end, good wins. And God wins. And so you look to God. And you depend on God. And you remember God. And you thank God and serve God and love God and worship God and study God. And you rest in God. Why? so that you can increasingly be gripped by joy. A pervasive sense of well-being. That's what joy is. That despite all the circumstances, it is well with my soul. Alongside joy, a peace that comes when we are assured not just of daily outcomes, but more importantly of ultimate outcomes. So folks, if, if that's all true, let's come back to the title of, of today's message. Uh, if our goal is to become agents of hope in the lives of other people, then one of the things that means is that, that we have to wrestle with what it looks like to build social networks 
of hope. We want to be infectious with hope. We want to shed hope like a virus. I mean, can you say that today? I, well, I guess I just did. We want to shed hope like a virus. Look what Paul writes to Timothy. These are the words of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. For God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. For in this way, they will lay up for themselves treasures as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What a great word. You don't put your hope in wealth. In other words, there is such a thing as false hope. You go to bed rich and you wake up and the stock market has fallen 30%. What do you do now? You went to work on Friday and you came home with a pink slip. Have you lost your hope? If we don't learn not to put our hope in wealth now, when will we ever? I mean, one of the, one of the flip sides of the crisis of the world over the past year is that it has allowed us a foundation, a testing ground, a crucible, if you'd like, in order to discern what in our lives is truly unshakable and what can be taken from us. And if our lives are, in fact, built on the firm foundation that we like to sing about. Put your hope in God, Paul says to Timothy. Do good. Be rich in deeds. Be generous with people. Be willing to share. Make every day like an investment. Invest in, in words like resurrection and redemption. The redemption of the world and of God's people. And you will be blessed. And not just that, though. Because, because human beings are imitators by nature. That investment spreads. Hope spreads. It's just it's true of everybody. Our brains are always scanning our environment. We're doing it constantly. We're always asking, what should I do next? And we look to other people for ideas. We're imitators. God has wired us that way. Which means you can model hope for people. You do model it. You do it when you know you're doing it. Sometimes you do it when you don't know you're doing it. You can bless your friend and in turn bless your friend's friend and your friend's friend's friend who you'll never meet. And the plan is we infect each other with hope and we do it all the time. Let me give you some examples. My friends here at MCBC, Beth and Josie and Mike and Hugh, they're just constantly sending off emails and notes of encouragement to give hope to people in their lives. And sometimes they'll write, they'll write such a great note that I open it and I read it, and for just a moment I think, I can do that too. And I'll write a few words of encouragement to some of the people in my life. 
other friends at this church, friends like, like Tim and Heidi and Craig, they, they have unbelievable minds. They've probably forgotten more great thoughts than I'll ever think. And sometimes we'll talk and sometimes they'll write and they'll share with me what they've been reading and I'll think, I can read that. I, I can have great thoughts like they have and Sometimes I do, and when I do, I pass them off to you, and you think they're my thoughts, and they're not. And maybe you tell a friend, these are some of the things we're learning about at church, and, and a friend of a friend of a friend gets blessed through the hope of somebody they'd never met. My friends Jade and Mike and Cindy, they love fitness. They're in great shape. They love the challenge of pushing themselves, and they challenge others, and And it hasn't quite caught on with me yet, but I hope it will. And I know people who experience joy so deeply that when I'm with them, I just can't help but feel their joy because it's contagious. Do good. Be rich in deeds. It's not rocket science, folks. It's just the God of hope filling you to the point of overflow. Again, those words, 1 Timothy 6. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You understand that really this is the reason the church exists. There are all kinds of defining our purpose. This is a great way of defining it. To unleash agents of God-given, overflowing hope. There's been a strange myth that's popped up every once in a while during this season. The myth is that somehow the church is closed. The church ain't closed. The church has never been more open. The church has never needed a building to be the church and to do the church. And we are the church right now. You are the church right now, right where you are. In fact, you're probably more the church now than ever because people need hope more now than ever. And I hope they're getting it from you. We are never more the church than when spirit-empowered people just start sloshing hope around. So that's my hope for you, for me, for all of us, that we'll be hope sloshers. Maybe you think, listen, I, I don't have what it takes. I don't, I don't think I have enough hope to qualify. And you'd be wrong. I don't mean that harshly. I mean that as a word of encouragement. You'd be wrong. I mentioned that little line from Cowper's poem that I love. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. Let me give you a little bit more background on the man who wrote it. William Cowper is a brilliant poet lived in the 1700s and suffered horribly from depression. In his early 30s, he tried to kill himself not once, but three times. He was placed in St. Albans' insane asylum. and There he met Jesus. I don't mean another inmate who thought they were Jesus. He met the living Christ. And he suffered from depression with Jesus. Jesus was there with him. The church has often not known what to do with people like that. 
Jesus knows what to do. He became a good friend of another man named John Newton. Some of you will know that name. John Newton had been a slave trader. He came to Christ. He was eventually convicted with great pain of his past. And he wrote, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But he didn't stop there. He invited Cowper to be part of a hymn writing project that resulted in over 300 hymns that have inspired people now for centuries. And Cowper, who knew excruciating suffering personally, couldn't stand to look out and see the suffering being inflicted in his own country, inflicted on African kidnapped slaves. And so Cowper becomes kind of like the poet laureate for abolition. One of his poems, called The Negro's Complaint, was so powerful that it forever changed the life and the trajectory of a Baptist pastor who lived 200 years later. That pastor will go on to quote it again and again in his rallies, in his sermons, in his teaching. That man's name was Martin Luther King, Jr., Maybe I thought that on, on this weekend, as we celebrate Black History Month, I'd spend a few minutes and, and read and, and invite you to sing with those two great authors. And as you read, to think and lament and pray, but also recognize how hope spread from friend to friend to friend across the generations. It starts with the words of Cowper. Forced from home and all its pleasures, Africa's coast I left forlorn to increase a stranger's treasures o'er the raging billows born. Men from England bought and sold me, paid my price in paltry gold. But, though slave they have enrolled me, mines are never to be sold. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But now am found was blind, but now I see. Is there, as ye sometimes tell us, is there one who reigns on high? Has he bid you buy and sell us, speaking from his throne, the sky? Ask him. If your knotted scourges, matches, blood-extorting screws are the means that duty urges, agents of his will to use. But when we've been there 10,000 years, 
Deem our nation brutes no longer, till some reason ye shall find worthier of regard and stronger than the color of our kind. Slaves of gold, whose sordid dealings tarnish all your boasted powers, prove that you have human feelings ere you proudly question ours. Folks, that's the language of Christian lament. It's the cry of Jesus' own heart. I wonder what the world would be like today if 250 years ago, every person who claimed the name Christian over their own life had heard God's voice in those words and had repented and had said, we will not do this evil thing. We will no longer kidnap and degrade and enslave a race of people because of the color of their skin. But we did not. And so Pandora's box was opened once more and there was still more evil waiting to get out. And all these years later, we still see it in our cities and in our schools and in our hearts. But there is hope. This is not an optimistic movement, but it's a hopeful one. Only hope that's really worth having doesn't come from ignoring pain or denying pain or or even avoiding pain. It doesn't come from trying to make sure that my own little life is safe and okay. It comes precisely from and through and with the pain. It is the hope of the cross where the love of God took the pain of sin to save a wretch like me. And it was the pain of a suicidal man, William Cowper, who met Jesus in an asylum. And the pain of a a shame-filled slave trader named John Newton that led to words that would move another man. And Martin Luther King's words in in turn would move a nation. And nobody could have seen it coming. But the friend of a friend of a friend touched history And that's the way that Jesus is. And that's the way that the church works in one great chain of influence that goes all the way back to him, to the friend of sinners. He's our friend. And what a friend we have in Jesus. Sometimes, as it was with Jesus on the cross, it's the wretching pain that you think you can no longer bear. It will become the greatest hope that you will ever give. 
Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while they sing. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. Know how we need the healing wings of God in our world today, don't we? I'm asking you, if you're watching this, will you be an agent of hope? Will you be an agent of hope? Let's start right now. As we reflect and, and sing together, and listen to these beautiful words that, that Rochelle wrote some years ago to ask the question and to answer it. What does our faith really look like when it's put to work? Will you be agents of hope? Keep 